Yeah, I remember you did an intro for the live show, too. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes. I remember Welcome doing an intro, live. yes. So do you need to do this? It is December 27th, 2012. <laughs> and for the first time ever, Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh are together in the OR History Cave of Mysteries, or whatever we're going to call it. Do you have to do this? <laughs> Didn't you already do this? I did an intro, but, I, but I, I feel that people want to hear us together in the same room recording for the first time ever. That is a very, very unique experience. I mean, over 40 podcasts, and I don't think we've ever been in the same we've room. We've never been in the same room. Yeah. It uh, smells strangely of weenies. It does. Little Smokies. Little Smokies. Yeah. So we recorded a live uh, Very Dan Ford Christmas. Yeah. At the Jack London Bar, and that's what uh, we're uh, pawning off as a podcast. Because nothing says Christmas like a good old hanging. Like a like like a well, it's a well hung Christmas. And non ornaments. And no no ornaments on the tree. Only dead uh, sharecroppers. There you go. Enjoy. Thanks, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining us this evening at the Jack London Bar. You ready, Frank? Yeah. All right. Let's start this up. Welcome to another live installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the Geeked Out History folks at ORHistory.com. Coming to you this evening live from the Jack London Bar. In fucking Portland, Oregon. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. The good stuff. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Lindbergh, the ghost host of the production. Tonight we have some very special guests, Mr. Lindbergh being one of them, uh, our ghost host of Kick-Ass Oregon History. We also have Carrie Hallett. Who's going to play banjo during the intermission? I like to think that Danford Balch would enjoy the banjo, and so that is what's going to happen this evening. And my name is Doug Kent Crispin, and I am the ribald resident historian at ORHistory.com. We do this little podcast series called Kick-Ass Oregon History that showcases stories that do indeed kick ass from Oregon's past. It's fairly intuitive, and one of our favorites was the story of Danford Balch. So we decided to resurrect this production for this evening as a Christmas gift to you and to talk about the gift that Danford endowed our city with. So I thought what we'd do before we get into our Portland tale in that holiday spirit, we might look at some famous hangings. Now there's this really cool website if you're into this sort of thing, called executedtoday.com. I shit you not. Well, this is kick-ass Oregon history here. Because there's not much more kick-ass than machine guns, boobs, and dead Nazis. 
So this is it. This is executedtoday.com. And they have this little calendar thing. It's kind of like Dave's uh, This Day in Oregon History, if you guys are familiar with that. Only it's bloodier. So I thought I would look at December 20th, because you can see who was executed on December 20th through our past times. So let me give you some of the highlights. Guglielmo Oberdan. I hope I'm saying his name right. I'm probably not. Very handsome looking gentleman. Kind of looks a bit like Mr. Dunn, actually. He was an Italian nationalist. Um, he, uh, uh, excuse me, this is not Oregon history. Austro Emperor Franz Joseph visited trustees to celebrate that city's 500th anniversary under the Austrian crown in Italy, and Mr. Oberdan attempted to assassinate him. He had a suitcase that was stuffed full of explosives, but he was very unsuccessful in delivering that to the emperor. He killed two innocent bystanders instead. Oberdan was quoted as saying, I will throw my corpse between the emperor and Italy. An Italian youth will at least have an example. He went to the gallows on December 20th, 1882, proclaiming, Viva la Italia. Our next is Robert McGladden, who was the last man executed in Northern Ireland in 1961. He was hanged for killing a lady named Pearl Gamble. He followed her out of a dance hall and he strangled and stabbed her. He was observed stashing his bloody dance hall clothes in some underbrush, so it was a pretty open and shut case. So in addition to being the last man executed, he was of course the last man hanged in Northern Ireland. Our last is in 1786 in New London, Connecticut. A 12-year-old girl from the Peacock Nation, her name was Hannah Akish, was hanged for the death of a six-year-old white girl. She's a pretty sad case. She was abandoned by her drunken mother. She was possibly mentally retarded. And Hannah was a cleaning girl in a home where apparently she killed Eunice Balls when she sought revenge on Eunice because the younger girl had complained of her in strawberry time for taking away her strawberries. So of course she was executed on December 20th in 1786. Hannah was the youngest female executed in the United States, but not the youngest child. In 1885, a 10 or 11-year-old Cherokee boy was executed in Arkansas. Now the youngest 20th century executions in the US were 13 and 14-year-old boys. Currently, only New Hampshire and one other state retained the right to execute by hanging. Does anyone else have a guess who the other state is? Close. It's even a little bit closer. It's actually Washington. In Washington, you can choose to be hanged rather than take the lethal injection. So we have gay marriage, fucking weed, and hangings right across the river, right across the Columbia. It's fucking party town. But of course, tonight, we're talking about a hanging in Portland, fucking Oregon, of Danford Balch. Well, thank you, thank you. Originally from Massachusetts, Balch came to the Portland area in October of 1850. He took a fairly 
familiar path to those of you who were children in the 70s, the 1970s. And uh, he came to Portland. Here's a picture attributed to Portland, 1853, so just two or three years after Danford came here. In 1850, 821 Portlanders were counted in the U.S. Census. The first issue of the Weekly Oregonian on December 4th, 1850, had that number at 1,500, counting, quote, transients and Indians ignored by the census takers. Now, Portland at that time has about 120 one-story buildings. They're very box-like, and they're variously described in rather contradictory manner as one being a small, beautiful village, or two, a raw, disheveled place, gangling and awkward in the spurt of its first growth. And the Balches were thrust into this locale. Danford Balch homesteaded in the Willamette Heights. Now you and I know this area today as McClay Park, or also a part of Forest Park. But his 365 donation land claim, 365 acre donation land claim, was not just the park, but all of the then forested land all the way towards the river to about Northwest 23rd Street. So in today's geography, he had everything from 23rd Avenue and up, and roughly from Lovejoy to Thurman. So some very fucking valuable land in today's economy. But at that time, Portland was not much more than a bloated village or even a bloated burg along the river. And Balch's donation land claim was certainly isolated and absolutely on the periphery of that community. His land was rugged and timbered, and he and his wife, Mary Jane, and their nine fucking children lived in a hand-hewn log cabin in today's park. So a quick note, the stone house in Forest Park is not the Danford Balch home, as some urban legends have attributed. The building was a WPA project in the 1930s, and it's commonly referred to as the Witch's Castle. ORHistory.com's Asian correspondent, Ralph Jennings, wrote a piece on the Witch's Castle, which is on our website. That's right, we are so kick-ass that we indeed have a correspondent that lives in Asia. And luckily for us, he works for free. So Danford Balch worked his land claim, and he tended to his nine children, and well, he drank intoxicating drinks, as they were referred to at the time. And apparently Danford Balch was quite fond of the spiritist liquors, and he was quite practiced at consuming them. Now, a nearby claim was worked by the Stump family. And seemingly the Stumps and the Balches did not get along too well. One of their sons was the horrifically named Mortimer Stump. And he's described in a news article as being of, quote, ordinary character. And Mortimer took a liking to Balch's 15-year-old daughter, Anna. Even though the general dislike of the two families, Balch hired Mortimer to help him around his land claim. As young folks are known to do, the two fell in love, and Mortimer asked Danford permission to marry Anna, following what a San Francisco paper labeled, quote, the usages of the country. Yet again, demonstrating just how fucking weird Portland has always been. 
Old Man Ball steadfastly refused the union to commence. And furthermore, it is reported that he told Mortimer that anyone marrying his daughter without his express permission would be shot. So, I think you know where we're going with this little tale. The two young lovers eloped, and as there was a degenerate stigma and a nefarious association to the union, they did what untoward folks do today. They moved to the coup. Vancouver, Washington, home of shameful Oregonians. Anna Balch became Anna Stump and eternally avoided the chance for a surname upgrade. Now we all know that historians aren't supposed to be biased. We're supposed to be impartial. Just like all the news reporters that you see on television. Just like the teachers that you all had in school. We're supposed to be non-judgmental, ignoring all that is within us that may sway our interpretation of the historical record one way or the other. But, bias and historians, all in all, it's a fucking lie. Bias and baggage are always there. You can't escape it. The best thing that you can do is be fucking upfront and acknowledge it. Now I have a sweet little 11-year-old girl, just a few years younger than, Al, uh, than Anna Balch, and most of the time she's sweet, sometimes she's not. But when I read the accounts of Danford Balch, I feel that I can relate a little bit to the feeling of emotional distress that he speaks about when his daughter left him. And we have an amazing record to consult. Balch underwent an extensive interview the day before he was hanged. I think it was about 4,000 words. The Oregonian claims that he reviewed and okayed the transcription, so we have a pretty reputable version of Balch's side of the story. Now, for all the history geeks, and I know that there's two or three of you out there, it's printed in the October 22nd, 1859 version of the weekly Oregonian. So let's take an opportunity to hear, in Balch's own words, what he had to say. And I want you to picture uh, Clint Eastwood as playing Danford Balch. <laughs> the night I came home and found the girl gone, it struck a pain in my heart like a knife cutting me. I ate a little supper and went to bed, but did not sleep a wink all night. In the morning, after getting up, I started for town, and it seemed as if my stomach would burst from anxiety and grief, which were more than I can express. It kept growing worse and worse on me. For a long time, I don't think I slept an hour a night. That's Danford in 1859. Woo -hoo. Woo. So there he is. Sitting in this shitty dark little cabin, probably smoky from a smoldering wood fire, damp and steamy. Danford Bald is drinking and he's drinking and he's drinking. Until one day in November 1858, when Balch is standing by the door of Star's Tin Shop, he saw that the Stumps had come to town for supplies. And again, in Danford Balch's own words, Ad Stump and the old man, and afterwards Mortimer Stump came up. When he saw me, the old man commenced growling or muttering at me and wanted to know what I had against him. 
I told him I had nothing against him. He said I should not talk to him that way. He cursed a good deal and said I was making a great fuss about my child. That she was an ordinary little bitch. And he didn't know what the fuck I wanted from her. There was more said. I, I do not recall saying another word. After that, my gun standing at my left hand, I took it up and started for the boat. Now let's take a little look at Portland in roughly 1858. This is 1859, so a year later, but you can see it's a muddy little place. This is celebrating after they found out about statehood, which was several months after statehood was declared, of course. Here's some of the more famous buildings. And when Danford said he's heading to the boat, he's referring to the Stark Street Ferry. As no bridges spanned the Willamette until 1887, the ferry was the main way to get across the river until its popularity waned in 1894. When first in use, the ferry was propelled by mule teams that would drag the boat across the river between Portland and what was then called East Portland. Fare was free to children and to funeral parties. If you look at some placards on TriMet, or if you go to TriMet.org, you can search Stark Street Ferry and find this photo. Now, this is a photo of the venture from the 1880s, so a little bit out of our time frame. But nonetheless, the picture gives you a good reference to river transportation in Portland before the bridges came. And with that, now back to Danford Balch. So Danford walks down onto the Stark Street Ferry and onto the boat, where in addition to the stumps and a wagon team, he saw his daughter, Anna, for the first time since the elopement. Balch got into quite a confrontation with the stumps. And again, in his own words, the gun went off. How, I cannot tell. I had the gun lying across my left arm. As the gun went off, I felt the jar. I have no recollection of hearing the report of the gun. My first thought of feeling the jar was that young Stump had a hold of the gun, but on turning my head, I discovered the smoke, which was the first I knew the gun had discharged. Next I saw was Stump lying on the boat, shot. Mortimer Stump lied dead on the Stark Street Ferry, his blood flowing freely from his face and neck wounds inflicted by two barrels of buckshot. Turning around, the ferryman came up to Balch and simply stated, I do not allow such work here. <laughs> that was it. Is that not one of the fucking classic lines in Portland history? A, a brief transgression, if you will allow me. I came up with a top ten historical lines from Portland's past list. The problem is, I only have three so far. But I'm going to fucking find more. Okay, so we're going to go through. The Stark Street Ferryman is clearly on the top. Do you want to see the other two? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fuck yeah, that's right. So right up there is Bill Walton in the 1977 NBA Victory Parade. Will the guy who has my bike please bring it back so I can get home? Somebody stole Bill Walton's fucking custom-made motivacon or whatever the fuck it was. The guy's seven feet tall, but they stole it. And he did get it back, but it was like 30 years later. 
And of course, of Shanghai Tunnel Eminence, Bunko Kelly on discovering 24 almost dead dudes at the Johnson & Son funeral parlor. <laughs> Them stiffs have been drinking Undertaker's dope. <laughs> there we go. Thank you, thank you for the top three of ten. So, back to the Stark Street Ferry. This is kind of a shitty picture of it, but... Danford Balch was quickly and quite roughly apprehended, and he had inflicted upon him a very proper shit beating, and he was taken to Portland Slapdash Jail. So at this juncture, I would like to ask you, should we extend sympathy for Danford Balch? And I'm gonna leave that for you to decide, but I wanna throw out a couple of little fucking tidbits for you to consider. Some place the blame firmly on Mary Jane Balch. Not as to actually pulling the trigger, but setting up the motivation for Danford to pull the trigger. Some accounts have Mary Jane badgering Danford to no end. Supposedly she kept saying, you said you were gonna kill Mortimer, so keep your promise like a man or be a dog. And I can picture Danford sitting in some shitty fucking cabin up in Forest Park in the rain for weeks, drinking and drinking, all gloomy, listening to Mary Jane bitch and bitch and bitch. Now, Danford was definitely not an unfeeling, cold-blooded murderer. In fact, some have stated, and it's quoted from uh, his trial, he has always been regarded as an honest, industrious man, and heretofore sustained a good character. So while it would be a convenient truth to lay the blame on a person who was just a short fuse, snap judgment, angry type of man, that just doesn't seem to be the case. Now on the other hand, part of the appeal of an Oregon was the promise of the land. The promise was this, come out here and work hard and you can have a decent living. No hopes, no changes, nothing aspirational, a fucking promise. And as we examined in our Portland Treasure podcast, the land was the land of proverbial milk and honey. Before the pink people came, the Chinook peoples enjoyed a very high standard of living off of salmon and furs. Next in the area was the Hudson's Bay Company, making a... a doing much of the same, but on a huge transnational scale. Fucking millions were made for wealthy white men in England. Americans who came next and settled the region found a land of rich black soil. All you had to do was plant it and you were fine. You just had to exert a little bit of toil, just a little sweat and blood, and you could support a growing young family with a pretty decent lifestyle. This was the promise that was given to settlers of this region. Come here, work, and everything will be a-okay for the rest of your life. And Danford Balch fucking stole this from Mortimer Stump. So let's check back with Danford one more time about his incarceration. Probably the first three or four nights in jail, I slept not at all. After being in jail for three or four days, I was taken by colic and flux, which greatly reduced me. From the time the girl was married until I had been in jail several days, I recollect very little that happened. All seemed more like a dream than a reality. 
I have felt hard towards many for their treatment of me. But I have in a measure got over that. I suppose I ought not to cherish such feelings, but there is a sense of injury as to the cause of my present difficulty of which I cannot divest myself. I am not able, because I have not sufficient liberty of mind, to tell what that injury was. Poor guy. Curious indeed. No editorialize. <laughs> now the jail in Portland was indeed a shoddy affair, poorly constructed, and Danford Balch and three other inmates escaped a few months after he was incarcerated. Now the night of their escape, three mules were stolen from a barn on the east side of the river, and they were found the next day just north of Oregon City. Because where the fuck else are you going to go, right? But folks who knew Danford were skeptical. They knew that he loved his family much too much to flee, and they were right. For Danford Balch escaped and lived on his donation land claim right up there in Forest Park. And his family would bring food to him in his secret sanctuary. Now, as we covered in our Jailbreaks podcast, you never want to go on the fucking land to your home, but he did. And eventually he was caught. But the affair kept the interest of Portlanders and even the San Francisco the San Francisco papers kept its readers updated on the progress of the fugitive hunt. Balch was tried in August of 1859 and was found guilty after a four-day trial. The jury deliberated for literally minutes before they passed down their verdict. So at this point, we're going to take a quick little break, but don't go anywhere because Carrie is going to play banjo for us. She's going to whip out a couple of three of Danford Balch's favorite songs, and then we're going to come back and tell the rest of our tale. So, very hell. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Alright, I'm just gonna play a couple songs for 
closure of the jugular veins, possibility of carotid sinus reflex death, which is when high pressure occurs to the carotid arteries, high enough that it reduces the heartbeat, causing cardiac arrest. The neck can also break a cervical fracture, which will occasionally lead to decapitation. Often sphincters relax spontaneously, causing urine and feces to be violently purged from the body. In males, a death erection can occur, or as Mr. Lindbergh pointed out, what is termed angel lust. <laughs> Hard as a fucking rock. So, in 1859, Judge Walt proclaimed that Danford Balch was to be hanged on October 17th between the hours of 10 and 11 a.m. A platform had been built next uh, on the lot next to the scaffold, and seats were advertised to be sold for 50 cents each. Portlanders, it seems, have always been entrepreneurial, crafty folk. The night before the hanging, some men destroyed the platform and they carted away the lumber. So, it seems that Portland has always had tweakers. Where was the, where was the hanging at Danford Balch was hanged on Monday, October 17, 1859 on a quickly constructed scaffold at Front and Salmon Street on a dreary, typically Portland, rainy day. So here it is, the courthouse on Front and Salmon. And this is where many people were hanged, as we will find out. In a town of about 2,500 people, about 600 attended the public hanging. This hanging has been called the first legal hanging in the state of Oregon. Now the Oregonian stated, quote, we are glad to chronicle the fact that but few of the citizens of this city attended the execution. The Big O claimed that most of the spectators were from the interior. <laughs> Fucking Portlanders always separating themselves from the rest of the trash in this state, so it seems. But this was also an incorrect statement, or the Big O had no fucking idea how Hesher a hanging really was. The next public hanging took place in Portland in 1878. In this 1939 article, when hangings were a major pastime, the reporter penned that, quote, the people of Portland adjusted themselves to the idea of capital punishment executed publicly, and the next sheriff's hanging found an estimated crowd of 3,000 people milling the streets about the courthouse hours prior to the actual springing of the death trap. Now that was for the hanging of James Johnson and Archie Brown in 1878. So for years, thousands of people would come out to First Street and watch these public hangings. Now Multnomah County Census from 1860 described Danford Balch's hanging as, quote, very sudden. So my guess is he had a little bit of that cervical breakage. Dr. Loria from the Hawthorne Insane Asylum was the officiant who declared Balch dead. Balch's daughter, Anna Stump, 
was present in the crowd. That's right. She went and witnessed her father's hanging. She sat with the rest of the stump family. Needless to say, the reporter from the Oregonian was aghast. As Mr. Lindbergh will demonstrate. The idea of a daughter by her own volition attending the execution of her father on the gallows is a disgrace to the intelligence of the age and to every principle of filial affection manifested or exhibited by every species of the brute creation in the sea or upon the earth. This fact is of a character that we cannot pass unnoticed and must meet with the surprise, reprobation, and detestation of the whole community. The Oregonian, getting biblical on your ass since 1859. So, where does this leave us? Well, let me fucking tell you. Danford Balch's widow, Mary Jane, remarried. And she sold off some of the land which Balch had intended as an inheritance for the children. Remember, he had fucking nine of them. The land changed hands several times and was eventually parceled off. The creek that runs through the park, appropriately called Bulch Creek, was a significant source for city water until the 1880s. Eventually, a good chunk of the land ended up in the ownership of Portland businessman and Scotsman Donald McClay. In 1897, bitching about those goddamn property taxes, he said he would rather give the land to the city than pay his fucking taxes. And he did just that. One of McClay's conditions of the gift was that, quote, the city shall provide conveyance for carrying patients from the area hospitals through the park during the summer. Hence the wide trails that provide a cool respite on a hot summer day. I like to think of Danford Balch as old man Balch. Not that anyone ever called him that. And as far as we know, Danford Balch wasn't really that old. First of all, he was 47 when he was hanged. But that title, old man Balch, sounds so literary, so apropos. It resonates just right for our tale this evening. The name seems to be a natural fit and it just kind of rolls off of the tongue. It also conveys a bit of respect for the story and indeed the legacy that the man left the city. And to be frank, it's a complicated heritage. On one hand, old man Balch left us with a murderous, drunken legacy, which is correctly what Danford Balch bestowed to Portland. But on the other hand, without his existence on our city's census ledger, perhaps we wouldn't be endowed with the beautiful civic public space that is part of, of Forest Park. For this gift alone, we should honor the murderer Balch and enshrine the respect that he deserves for the germination of this public act. We hope, dear ass kicker, that you will allow us this poetic transgression when we refer to the deceased as Old Man Balch. For his is really a heart-rendering tale. It's the stuff of a Hollywood production, but with kind of a 
82nd Avenue, Walmart sleaze woven through the tail. A father abandoned by his daughter, driven to spiritous liquors in his devastation and despair. A young man, full of all the promise of youth and opportunity in this bountiful land, lay dying in a pool of his own blood on the deck of the Stark Street Ferry. One of the things that strikes me about this story is how often it's rehashed in the accounts of the early city. The web has several pages that are dedicated to the story. The Oregonian has printed versions of it many times, of course. During the incident, it was almost tabloid worthy in what was then termed the Weekly Oregonian. The story lived on, and in 1938 and 1961, the daily version version of the paper ran stories on Danford Balch, and even the Oregon Historical Quarterly has examined the case. Some folks even say that Balch and stump ghosts fight each other at night at the witch's castle to this very day. And I swear I never saw that on acid. But why so much print for this story? And why are we looking at it over 150 years later? Well, first of all, it is a kick-ass story. Second of all, This is a tragic tale, a pitiful tragedy, as a 1928 article penned it, but one connected with an iconic destination in Portland. You can go and actually walk Balch's land, seeing what he saw, imagining him hiding in the woods, heartbroken, hungry, wet, and scared. And I'm certain that every time you visit Forest Park, from here on out, Danford Balch's story will pop out at you, and indeed, I fucking hope that it does. But I think there should be something more. This, this right here, is the public legacy of Danford Balch. A little shitty sign with almost unbearably small script marking the location of his donation land claim. This is the public commemoration of the man who enabled Forest Park. Now I respectfully submit to you that this is not enough for one of our most interesting founding fathers. Where is the statue to Danford Balch? Where's the parade down First Street and the laying of the wreaths at the locations of the long gone gallows? Where's our civic pride for the murderer Balch? What are you going to do to preserve the homicidal legacy of Danford Balch? I already did a fucking podcast. What are you going to do? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us this, this evening. I want to thank Terry and Carrie and other Carrie of the Jack London Bar for hosting us tonight and Carrie for playing uh, banjo. I also want to thank my partner in crime, our ghost host, Andy Lindbergh, for flying in this evening from New York City just for this fucking event. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was recorded live at the Jack London Bar by ORHistory.com. It was written, edited, and produced by Doug K. Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. 
Citations are available on request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon History events, pick up Oregon History merchandise, and get a list of songs featured in each podcast. Plus, you'll receive extra insights into podcast topics and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. You can support the podcast. Go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And... Coming up on January 31st, 2013, join us on our Treasure and Loot Double Decker Bus Tour, co-sponsored by our kick-ass friends at Double Decker PDX, Double Mountain Brewery, and East Side Distilling. We will visit several locations of fabled treasure, stop in on a few watering holes, and conduct a drunken scavenger hunt as we enjoy adult malted beverages. All for less than 30 bucks. The only history tour in Portland that could make you fucking rich. Visit our website, orhistory.com, and pick up a ticket today. So join us on the treasure tour. Just don't follow Mr. Kank Crispin's treasure trail. It leads to his testicles. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.